we're going to find our way back eventually to Luke 15. Um, but to get there, we're going to uh, take a few rabbit trails. So I'm just going to start. Actually, let's do offering first. Let's do offering. Um, so I know it's the last day of the month, but I just want to, I know I say this every week. I don't want y'all to take this for granted. I'm so thankful for you, for your faithfulness in giving. And like everything that our church is doing, whether it be, you know, through podcasts that is, blesses a lot of people um, outside the state, outside the country. It's really cool to hear stories and emails I get a lot. But all of that is because of your faithfulness in giving. So not only what we see here, but what we don't see. And so um, anyway, so thank you guys so much for just continuing to be faithful in that. Um, you can give online, you can give in the app, or you can give in the service. And um, it's just cool to see what the Lord is doing in all of our lives as we just continue to be faithful in that. So um, anyway, that being said, Kyle is not here because he just got married. So Brian, what's up, dude? Why don't you come up here? Why don't you help us out while you're here? I mean, <laughs> this is Brian, the OG electric guitar player. I honestly don't know what OG means. I use that a lot. Is that original? Gangster. Original gangster. Maybe I shouldn't use that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't use Somebody, listen, you want to hear a real funny joke? So I, should I say, sure. I, so I used to think Netflix and chill meant chilling out. So I have used that before, not knowing it does not mean that. So please forgive me if, uh, if y'all thought I was saying what it actually, I guess, means. But, so I'm a dad, so anyway, so I won't be using that anymore. Um, and any other thing that I say uh, that I don't know, just assume I don't know what I'm talking about, okay? Just assume it. If it's offensive, just assume I don't know what I'm talking about, and we'll all be good. Assume the best. First thing you learn in marriage counseling. Um, okay, Brian's going to finish that up. If you didn't get a chance to throw it in, then uh, you can do it after service. Thank you. And uh, All right, here we go. Here we go. I'm so excited about today. So we're going to get started, and I'm going to just read like I normally do. We'll find our way through. Um, I'm, I'm going to spend a lot of time in the NIV version today, so if you have that, that's what we'll be in. Um, all right. Is there any announcements I need to make? I don't think so. No. Okay. I'm just making sure before we move. The Lord woke me up Friday morning and said this, and this is what the whole day is going to be about. And uh, he has a habit of doing this lately, and man, I, I'm not ready for it. But Because um, you know when you wake up, you need some time to just turn your brain on. So my alarm goes off Friday morning, and I stand up, and I hear the Lord whisper this. And he said, The fall was not so much about what you lost as it was about what I lost. Let me say this one more time. The fall was not so much about what you lost as it was about what I lost. The fullness of the Trinity that existed long before anything was created made the decision to share in its union and make room for another man. Y'all with me? I know this is a lot to start out, but y'all just hang with me. When he said, let us make man in our image in Genesis. It's the Trinity that existed long before saying, let's make room for another Adam. 
So this isn't just, and I've taught this just review, this isn't just, here's Trinity, and let's just throw Adam down here. There's no point in that. He doesn't need that. God doesn't need that. What he does is he makes room for the image and likeness of that spin. With me? That's what it means to be made in the image and likeness. That's what that means. The Trinity exists in such a preference of each other, Father, Son, Spirit, that they are totally one without ever losing individuality. So when we read the Gospels, we see Jesus saying, don't give glory to me, give glory to my Father. Jesus is just as much God as the Father is. Right? Okay. Okay. He's just as much... So them glorifying Jesus was totally valid because he's God. Yet he says, no, don't give me anything. If you're going to give anything, give it to him. So you, you see this? In Philippians 2, we see God the Father giving Jesus, quote, the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you see Jesus' life submitting all glory to the Father. In Philippians 2 and other places, you see the Father exalting Jesus to the highest place. And then in John 14, we see that the Holy Spirit teaches us everything specifically about Jesus. So Jesus is throwing everything to the Father. The Father's throwing everything to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's throwing everything to Jesus. And they're in this constant place of humility where they prefer each other but never lose self. This is what the Trinity is. It's in a constant state of preference without ever losing the DNA and identity of what it does individually. So the fullness of that preferential love, in Greek we would say agape, to prefer, the fullness of that preferential love spun out of the Trinitarian decision, let us make man in our image. And that's Genesis 1.26. The fullness of that. It wasn't just God the Father saying, let me make man in my image. It was let us make man in our image. So everything that the Father, Son, and Spirit was, was thrust into Adam. Y'all with me? Okay, I'm just giving you Bible. You may have never heard this before, but this is in your Bible. What, uh, when that happened... At that moment, God and his fullness, listen to this, would never be complete again without man. Y'all real quiet. When that happened, when they made the decision... Let us make man in our image. They placed a picture of the Trinitarian image into Adam. Therefore, if you remove Adam from that picture, that image and that picture of who the Trinity is is now missing. 
Thanks, Julia. Here's what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to go real deep, and if y'all want to go with me, awesome. If not, I love y'all. Hope you have a good memorial. Um, just kidding. I know y'all tired from something. <clears throat> God risked the integrity of his image on us. God was so loved that they gave. The fullness of Father, Son, and Spirit now reside after that decision to make Adam now resided in Adam and God saw, quote, that it was very good. So the union that for eternity past the Father, Son, and Spirit exclusively enjoyed now made room for Adam and his legacy to also enjoy. This is, so, this is such good news. The walk in the cool of the day was really a dance in the spin of the Trinitarian God. For God, all was exactly in that moment as it was intended. The object of his affection was realized and enjoyed in you and I. God did not just create for us, he created for him. He would have no other reason, and there is no other explanation for creating and going through the heartbreak that he did than him creating out of desire. He did not create because he needed to. Whew, man. He did not create because he needed to. He existed in union long before and was totally satisfied. The, the Trinity, I gotta move this out of the way so when I walk around, I won't step on it. The Trinity existed long before Adam ever existed. And they were totally satisfied. So the only explanation for you and I, the only one, is that there was a desire in the heart of the Godhead to spin us out of its union. He didn't need it, which means he desired it. He created... Because he wanted to. Listen to this. Desire, not obligation, is what birthed you and I. So, so just for an example, Jordan and I share in our union with our daughter, Veda. She's included in our union now. Not because we had an obligation to produce anything by our union. We were totally satisfied before. But because we desired to. Are, are y'all with me? This is huge. So Jordan and I, completely satisfied. And now, looking back, 
If, you, if I were, I, it would be a lie for me to say we would be totally satisfied without Veda because now we've had Veda. But before she was born, we were completely satisfied with just her and I. And yet, we made the decision, or the Lord made the decision on our behalf, but we would have made the decision at some point. We made the decision to, out of our union, spin something out in our image and likeness. And in doing so, that which was spun out of the union was now and forever included in that union. So it's not Jordan and I, and then Veda just happens to find her way along the way. It's Jordan, I, and Veda in everything. So when Adam is made, it's no longer Father, Son, Spirit, Adam, figure it out. That's what we thought. But when God created in his image and likeness, he changed the whole game to now be Father, Son, Spirit, and Adam. So it was desire, not obligation. So if Veda left home, we would not chase after her because we were obligated to. We would chase after her because she is our desire. Do you see the difference? If I'm chasing after somebody because I have an obligation, I don't really care if they're ever found. But if I chase, I'm about to explode up here. I'm just going to need some help, okay? If I chase after my daughter because I desire her, I will not stop until she is found. That's the difference between the gospel that we have preached and the gospel of the Bible is that we have preached that God had an obligation to come to the cross. He went to the cross, and now he has an obligation to find the ones that would buy into this repeat the prayer religion. But what Scripture says is that he seeks until he finds. That's what God is. That's the gospel. This was not an obligation. This was God saying, I've got to get my sons and daughters back. And the only way to do that is to go die the death that they should die so that they can see that it's not obligation. It's desire that me and the Godhead making the decision to put Adam in the garden is what birthed. Now you are awake. Okay. We would not chase after her because she lost something. We would chase after her because we lost something. Most humans see our relationship with God through obligation. This is poor, and I had some other words right there, but I can't repeat them. This is poor theology that we have been pushing for decades. That God created because He had to. He took Israel out of Egypt because He had to. He sent Jesus because He had to. And will take us to a distant heaven because He has to. He created them, and now He's responsible for them, so now He's got to take care of them. No. God lost something at the fall. His kids. The objects of his affections, born from desire, not need. 
In the garden, he placed two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He did this because in order to be like God, we had to not only be able to say yes, but also know when to stop and say no and trust the other. That's why. You can read this throughout the, the, uh, the Jewish history text. That God put two trees in the garden. Because that's the, that's the question people ask. Why in the world would he put the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if he knew it was going to happen? Because in order for us to be like God, we not only had to just keep saying yes in an endless robotic cycles of everything that was predestined for us. We had to also be able to look at something that we were not made for and say no. How do we know that's like God? Because what did he do on day seven? He said, stop. He didn't just keep endlessly creating and creating and creating and creating. He created up till day six. He said, this is very good, and then he stopped. He knew when to say no. So he places a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil and said, do not eat that tree, but it's your choice because we are like God. This isn't, this isn't some crazy theology. I'm just quoting scripture, okay? So he placed the two trees so that we would know when to say yes or no and trust. Remember, remember, at this point, the Trinity is fully bought into in trust and honor of the other. Father, Son, Spirit, they're fully bought into in trust and honor the other. So when God said we don't need that tree, knowledge of good and evil, we should have operated in his likeness, which is a complete trust in the other. You with me? Father, Son, Spirit is in complete trust of each other. So when Jesus goes to the cross and says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And still proceeds, he's saying, I don't understand what's happening right in this moment, yet I trust you. So this is how the Trinity operates. So when we are told, do not eat this tree, there should have been something that rose up in Adam in the likeness of God that said, if you said it, I don't got to know why. I'm just going to say yes. However, knowing that by giving humans such high a calling as to be like God, God already set in motion or predestined a rescue plan should we go off of track. This is the incarnation. God giving such high a calling to man as to be like him, knowing that by giving them that calling, there was a possibility it would go off track. Revelation says, before the foundations of the earth, Christ was crucified. So God had in his mind Jesus just in case this extreme high authority given to man to be like God went off track. So that Jesus could bring us back on track. Why? Not because he had to, but because he wanted us. God didn't have to do anything. He was totally satisfied before us, and he would have been totally satisfied if he had let us keep going. He did it because he wanted something. 2 Corinthians, and I just quoted this, but I want you to hear this. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this. God caused him who had no experience in the sin identity. This is Josh's translation. I'm just translating the Greek. God caused him who had no experience in the sin identity to become the sin identity so that we could be transitioned to and solidified in our rightful place with God. He made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you read it in the Greek, what I just read is what you would get out of it. So Jesus took on flesh. That's John 1.14. He became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for flesh is sarks. And that means literally human nature. Okay? So y'all just hang with me. Hang with me. Hang with me. So Jesus took on human nature and dwelt among us. That's what John says. But Paul takes it a step deeper. John says that he became human nature and dwelt among us. Paul says he became hemartia, sin. Now, we would say, like, well, well, Jesus didn't sin. Exactly. That's not what hemartia means. That's what we've been talking about for three or four weeks. When, it's, when, Jesus, when John makes the announcement, here comes the Lamb of God that takes away, some of your Bibles say, the sins of the world. <clears throat> Wrong. Horrible translation. The Greek word is hemartia. So hopefully your Bible says, and I haven't gone through all the translations, but look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin singular of the world. Why does that matter? Because like I said a few weeks ago, if he takes away sins then there is this constant back and forth of you and I that every time we mess up, forgiveness. Every time we mess up, forgiveness. Every time we mess up, forgiveness. Jesus did not come to fix behavior. Jesus came to fix the root that caused the behavior, which is Adam's fall. That's what it means that he became sin. So John says he took on Flesh, he took on human nature and dwelt among us. But Paul said, not only did he take on human nature, he became sin. But Jesus didn't sin. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about behavior. He became the fall. He who knew no fall became the fall so that we in the fall might become what Jesus was without the fall. So that's a lot different than us saying, well, Jesus died so that you can be covered in the blood. Yeah, you're covered in the blood. But that don't mean your behavior has changed. That means your DNA has changed. You be, and, and let me ask you this. Who's covered in the blood? Y'all got real quiet on that one. Who's covered in the blood? Seriously. Y'all said it, not me. Is it the ones who repeated the prayer? Right? I mean, I'm not saying the repeated prayer is bad. I'm just saying if you repeated a prayer and you didn't realize your identity has completely changed, guess what? It didn't matter. There, there are people in China today that have never repeated a prayer. Here's the other issue. If repeating a prayer is how you get into it, then the disciples aren't in heaven. 
None of the early churches in heaven and nobody in scriptures in heaven because none of them prayed the prayer. Because it wasn't about praying a prayer. It was about you becoming what Jesus bought. And I know a lot of people who have prayed the prayer and then they start living this life. Myself, I was the one of them. Living this life of behavior. I got to do this. 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 And if I do that, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. And then, I got, and then it transitions to this. Got to hide this. Got to hide this. Got to hide this. Got to hide this. Right? So I got to go to church. I got to be this. I got to wear this. We got to make sure we're doing this. We got to make sure we're doing these songs. And we got to make sure we're doing communion five times a year. Right? I love communion. But I'm saying, like, we, we've, this, this is what we've made it. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. This isn't what this was about. This wasn't about sins. This was about the sin. He became sin so that we, doing nothing, having done absolutely nothing, so that we might become right with God. Not just, listen, don't hear that and just say like, well, God is appeased. No, 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 no. That word righteousness means you are in your right place. So it's not so that we might appease God's wrath. It's that so that we could be brought back into the spin again. Jesus was on a mission not to cover you in the blood so every time you look at stuff on the computer, you'd feel better about yourself. That's not what the mission of Jesus was about. The mission of Jesus was about taking you who was lost from him and placing you back in the spin. He became Adam's fallen identity. And that means when Jesus died, Adam's fallen identity also died. Man, y'all are so quiet, and this is good and great news. If, G- if Jesus became sin, the fall, if he became that, what died? I'll let y'all think about that one. When he raised, what was raised? If he died as Adam, you know what Adam means? Man. That's what the word Adam means. If he died as man, that means he also raised as man. Not as God. God didn't need to die. Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. But you and I did. The fall needed to die. So Jesus comes on a mission to take on that which needed to die that was keeping you and I in slavery, takes that on, allows himself to go to the cross, not because God needed to die, but because Adam needed to die. He goes to the cross, he's placed in a tomb, and three days later, God didn't need to rise because he didn't need to die. Adam. Paul calls him the second Adam for a reason. Adam in Jesus rises. Now check this out. When Jesus rose again, he was not a ghost. That's, hor- that's, that's Plato Greek philosophy. That's not Christianity. There is no ghost in Christianity. Y'all with me? A soul is not a ghost. <laughs> Th- thanks. I mean, Lord, how did, where did that even, how did we do that? If I said soul right now, most of y'all think there's a ghost floating around in you that's going to float off into heaven one day. What? 
That's not even logical. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry if I just offended somebody that believed that their whole life. But, but it is, I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, the early church, Lord sure didn't believe that. But anyway, um, <laughs> when Jesus rises again, he's, he's, he's bought. How do we know this? Because he was eating with them. He was communing with them. He told Thomas to come touch where he was nailed. He's a physical body. What does that mean about the ascension? You you ready? Y'all ready for this? Not only did Jesus take on Adam and die and take on Adam and rise, that means Adam is now face to face with the Father. So I'm telling you, it wasn't just a bunch of great ideas that we were brought back into union. By Jesus taking on sin, he not only dealt with sin in you and I, he ascended to the Father where you and I are now back literally in the spin again. So Adam, flesh, is face to face right now with the Father at the right hand. Which means you and I, if we have become one with Jesus, which Paul says and the Acts say and all the rest of the New Testament says, if we become one with Jesus, that means you and I are right now face-to-face with the Father in complete union with the Trinity. Colossians says it like this, all that He is now, so are we in this world. The incarnation was not just about getting us back what we lost. The incarnation was primarily about God getting back what he lost. This shift, that shift in thinking, would fix the fickleness of our self-identity. When we, look in, when we struggle with having a secret place with the Lord, the primary reason we struggle with having a secret place with the Lord is because we don't think he wants to be there. Let's be real. Like, if, if I believe that God feels, let me just use me and Jordan. If Jordan feels like I, I feel obligated to take her on a date, is she going to want to go on a date? Of course not. That's why nobody spends time in the secret place. Because what we think is that all of this was out of obligation. Therefore, he's going to be much happier if I just sleep in and never show up because he didn't want to spend time with me anyway. But if this and that and the resurrection and the whole thing was about desire, now you and I can never look in the mirror and say one bad thing about who we are ever again. You and I can never skip out on the secret place. And it's not going to be something where you have to just be like, man, i got to get up and do this. I've got to get up and read my Bible. It's going to say, he who created the earth desired me in such a way he became my mess so that I could become his perfection. Man, okay. Let me read this. Um, I've been, this book is amazing. I think every believer should read this. Jesus and the Undoing of Adam. See Baxter Kruger. Kruger. It's only 60 pages. 70 pages, but some of it is just notes. So really like 60. Um, uh, Let me read this. I I shared this with our group uh, chat for Tuesday nights. Um, But let me just read this for you guys. It says... What was God's reaction when Adam fell into sin? 
What did God do when the human race and creation were plunged into ruin and began lapsing into nothingness? Did God throw up his hands and walk away disgusted? Did he say to himself, I knew they would do this. They deserve to perish. Let them get what they deserve. Did God explode with anger at Adam and Eve for the audacity of disobedience to him? Did he threaten vengeance? Did his blood begin to boil with plans of punishment and retribution? No. The fall of Adam and Eve was met by the eternal word of God. Jesus. The disaster of Adam's sin, the chaos and misery, the brokenness and bondage of Adam's rebellion were met with an immediate and stout and intolerable divine no. I did not create you to perish. I did not create you to flounder in misery, to live in such appalling pain and brokenness and heartache and destitution. I created you for life to share in my life and glory, to participate in the fullness and joy, the free-flowing fellowship and goodness and wholeness that I share with my Son and Spirit. I will have it no other way. It will be so. Think about what did God do when Adam and Eve fell? You know what He did? He knit them clothes to cover their shame. He didn't say... I knew, I, boy, I, I knew it. I knew it. Y'all don't come back to my church again. You, you know what I'm saying? No. He said, all right, here we are. And in the meantime, knits them clothes to cover their shame. Yeah, Lord, Lord. He lets them cover their shame for a season. When Jesus comes, he becomes their shame so that we never have to hide again. I'm not even preaching on that, so that's free. <laughs> let, me, I'm just, let me just read. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read 2 Corinthians 5, because we will end up in Luke 15. Lord help us. Um, I know it's Memorial Day, which means y'all got a day to sleep tomorrow, so I got plenty of time. Uh, who said no? <laughs> oh, thanks, Susan. I can always count on you. All right. I'm just playing. Susan always says it real, so <laughs> always. Remember that week? It was like, y'all good? Susan went, nope. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Susan, I'm thankful for you. You know what's funny? Let me just, let me just brag on Susan while I just I tore her down, so let me brag on her for a second. Um, Veda just dances like you all over the house. Seriously, like we were on stage at the Ice House Amphitheater in Lexington, and uh, where the stage is, and she was dancing, and Jordan, like, she's just dancing, doing her thing, and Jordan said, you know who she's dancing like, right? And I was like, Lord, I don't know. And, uh, and she was like, she's dancing like Susan. And I, I saw, like, I could see it. And so, anyway, I'm just super thankful for you. It's a huge part of what we do. Anyway, so 2 Corinthians 5, let me read through 11 through uh, 21. Check this out. You ready for this? Paul says, since then... We know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What, and I'm in the NIV. I think I mentioned that, but just so you all know. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves 
uh, again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. It's really good. But this is where I wanted to go right here. If we are out of our minds, as some say we are, it is for God. I feel like I should get a tattoo of that Um, because that's all we hear, that we're out of our minds and devils and stuff. Anyway, verse 13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now check this out. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced. Why are they going through all this, Paul and them? Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 16. So from now, listen to this. This should be, this is super convicting for me. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. He does not qualify that. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I'm about to break those Greek words down. So cool. Verse 19. That God was reconciled. Listen, just, we, we read this all the time and it never clicks. I want you to hear this. Paul says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this is where he ends it. God made him who had no sin, or who was no sin. That's a better Greek translation. Either way. To be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So check this out. Verse 16, verse 16, it says, We know no one through um, we know no one through a worldly point of view. Sorry, I had a bunch of marked out and rewritten things. We know no one through a worldly point of view. The other way you could really say that is we know no one through Adam anymore. But now we know all through Christ. When it says the worldly point of view. Guess what? Guess what that's referring to? Sarks, human nature, the flesh word. We know no one through that. Now we know everyone through that. Don't let this stuff become just like nothing because we've heard it all our lives. You, I promise you, you've not heard this all your lives. You with me? So just because we've heard these verses and just because we preached on the cross for 20 years, don't let that get you into a place where it's just like, oh, great, that's awesome. No, 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 no. You don't understand. You know what I'm saying? Y'all don't understand what we're talking about right now. We're talking about world transformation. This is massive. 
In verse 18, when Paul says, reconciled, so the verse is, uh, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciled and reconciliation are two different words. Reconciled is katalasso in Greek, and it means to exchange the same or equal value. That's what the word means. So in verse 18, one more time, all this is from God who exchanged equal value us to himself through Christ. What he's saying is, is Christ took on our value and exchanged it, the price of his other identity, God. So he took on our identity, being fully God at the same time, and traded that for the other part of what he was, which was fully God. This is what this word reconciled means. He takes on us so that we could take on him of equal value, equal exchange, okay? But then when it says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, that word is from the same root, but it's katalage. So reconciled, katalaso, reconciliation, katalage. And that means restoration to favor due to the exact exchange. So, all this is from God, who exchanged our value through Christ and gave us the ministry of being returned into favor because of that exchange in Christ. The, okay. Man, 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 man. That means that in Christ, our sin identity was traded for his identity. Another way you could say that is our original identity. Because how were we in the beginning? Image and likeness of God. So when he comes to make the exchange, he exchanges post-fall for pre-fall. Then in verse 19, in verse 19 when he says uh, that God, this is the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and counting people's sin, not counting people's sin against them. That verse is massive. That while we were in our mess, God was exchanging our identity, even if we didn't know it. While we were in our mess, he was exchanging our identity. And on top of that, he wasn't taking account for our mess. What? How does that go against what we've been... You know what I'm saying? That before the reconciliation was finished, that God was erasing all the books of our story. Uh, okay, so he was exchanging the value of the entire cosmos, creation and human race, all of it, through Christ, taking zero account for there. And this word right here is, and I'm going to try to pronounce it right, it's a really weird word. It's paraptama, paraptama. I don't speak Greek, so y'all just ignore that. Okay. So this is what Paul wrote. This is the original text in Greek, paraptama. So taking zero or not counting people's sins against them, that Greek word paraptama means that he has established to us and through us an exchange that took zero account for, watch this, this is what the Greek word means, for the falling away. That's what the Greek word means. Right there. 
taking zero account of people's sins against them. Paroptima, sins against them. If you, take, if you look it up in the lexicon, it means falling away. So if he was not taking account of the falling away through the cross, that means at the cross he exchanged the falling away. And if he exchanged the falling away, what falling away is left for you and I to identify with? None. See, see, y'all thought when you got saved that you were getting saved into a good religion and Bible-believing church. What we had no idea was that we were getting saved into such an identity change that our works couldn't let it go if we tried. He has established to us the word, logos, of the exact exchange in Christ of fallen Adam for pre-fallen Adam as we were. And then in verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That word might is not in the Greek text. So God made him who had no sin so that in him we might become. Not That's nowhere in the Greek text at all. That is, com- that is completely added. So, what this verse reads in the Greek is, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we will become the righteousness of God. The Greek is not a hopefully. The Greek is, no, this is going to happen. It's a firm, solid statement. They will be the righteousness of God. The, uh, the Greek word right there is ginome, uh, ginome, and it means to come into being, to be born, to become, to come about, to transition, or to be manifested. So when it says become, in him he, he became sin, he knew no sin, so that we might become or so that we will become. It literally means so that we will be born, become, come about, transition, or be manifested in the righteousness of God. Okay. So verse 21, verse 21 could say, Therefore, in the Greek, Christ transitioned us to our right place with God. Uh, what time is it? Man. Real quick, go to Romans 5. Real quick, real quick. Y'all hanging with me? Okay, thanks, Susan. Appreciate it. Romans 5. Is this too much? Are y'all good? Okay, okay. I don't know if y'all were saying yes to being good or yes, it was too much, but that's Okay. I'll assume it was the second. I mean, this is huge. This is huge. We're believers. Everybody in the room, if you're not a believer, you've got an awesome opportunity today to become a believer. But everybody in the room that is a believer, like this is, what, this is who we are. You know what I'm saying? This isn't just, this isn't just some like religious thing we've done. This is a statement that God will have it no other way but you being back home. Okay, so Romans 5, let me just start at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of God, of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. I'm going to skip down to verse uh, 10. For if... While we, so perseverance produces hope, the whole thing. That's awesome. But what I really want to get to is what he says after that. 
Um, so, verse, yeah, let's do nine. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Uh, let me, no, 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 let me back up. Verse eight, verse eight, verse eight. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now verse 9. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were, here's the word, reconciled, exchanged to Him through the death of His Son, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, how much more, having been reconciled now, shall we be saved through His life? Not only this, but also we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. There's those two words right there I just preached about. Verse 12. For, and this might be maybe now my favorite passage in the whole New Testament. Followed by Romans 8. Real close. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, and even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Who's the one to come? Jesus. Do you hear this? Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did. Adam broke the command and therefore sinned, and he was a picture of Jesus. Verse 15, But the gift is not like the trespass. Here we go. This is what we need to get in the West right here. For if many, or the many, died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Uh, uh, awesome. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, check out what he says in verse 18. Consequently, he's starting to tie all this together. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man will the many be made righteous." The law was brought in so that every trespass might increase. But where sin increased, 
grace increased the more. Do we see that? Where sin increases, grace increases more. God is love. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness that brings eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Period. Then he goes on to Romans 6. But, and you know how, listen, Paul says all that, and here's how he starts Romans 6. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. I heard Damon Thompson say this one time. Any gospel that doesn't have to give the qualifier, should we continue sinning so that grace may abound, is not the gospel. Well, brother, you're going to over-preach grace. Impossible. It is ve- let me, it's very possible to over-preach sin. It's impossible to over-preach grace. Well, well, well brother, that's going to cause people to have a license to sin. If you hear this, if you hear everything I'm saying, and it causes you to want to dive deeper into something that doesn't exist anymore, Adam, then you didn't hear what I've been saying. Because as the Lord has been unveiling this to me, it does not cause me to say, well, great, I can just go do whatever I want because grace may abound. It causes me to say, I'm going to be more and more like the one who was so infatuated with me that he gave everything to have me back. So every time Jordan is faithful to me, it does not make me say, you know what? She's being super faithful. I'm going to just go you know, do whatever I want with anybody else because she'll still be there. No. The more faithful she is to me, the more faithful I want to be to her. This is, this is the gospel. The early church was smiling while they were getting their heads chopped off. You know why? It wasn't because they were just, you know, well, bro, we, gotta, we just got to do this. It's something we got to do. No, they were smiling because they knew that in that moment, they were about to taste the fullness of what they were already tasting but hadn't seen with their eyes yet. They were so bought into who they were now on the other side of this that it did not matter. In fact, another place says, you can take my body, but you cannot take my soul. Jesus says that. He says, fear those. Do not fear those who can harm your body. What is he saying? He's not talking about a ghost and skin. What he's talking about is, don't worry about the ones who are talking about this. I'm about to take care of this. Worry about the ones who are talking about this. Trample on this. Adam, trample on it all day long. But what we've actually done is trampled on this to keep this alive. What do I mean? Every time we preach behavior as a way to either get into the gospel or stay in the gospel, every time we preach behavior, we're trampling on this and we're giving life to this. But every time we preach God is love and that Adam actually through the cross no longer exists in us anymore. When we preach that, we're giving death blows to the Adam nature still within us and life to this. That's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I want to give death blows to any piece of Adam that you and I still have in us. Any piece. He didn't die so that 90% of Adam could be taken care of and you'd have to struggle through the next 10. 
He took care of Adam. So what, what's, what's the problem with the world? What's the problem with the world? The problem with the world, you ready? Is not that they need to change their behavior. They'll change their behavior if they understand who they are. That's the problem with our culture right now. It's not an issue of churches because there's churches on every slapping corner in America. Every church. There are churches. You can walk outside right now and within walking distance get to at least 20 churches. Right here. So, so it's not an issue of churches. Somehow China's exploding. They don't have one church public. China, right now, China has more Christians than any country on planet Earth. And do you know how many public gatherings they have? Zero. How is that even possible? Because they're finding this. They're finding this, and they're saying, I mean, you know what? They're, they're, they're handwriting the Bible as fast as they can before they get thrown in jail or killed. We've got, I've got two Bibles right here on stage, and we don't even use them. You know why? Because we see God as somebody who had an obligation to get us out of our mess. They see God as the Abba who came to get his kids. Anyone, anyone still living in their fallen identity is not enslaved to Adam or the devil, but enslaved to a lie of who they really are after the cross. So how much weight falls off our shoulders when we're trying to reach the lost now? I'm not trying to pull them out of Adam because he took care of Adam. Now I'm trying to tell them this isn't who you are, but I know who you are. That's a lot easier. So we can walk down. I said this the other week. We can walk down Soda City, and now we don't have to say, repent or burn. Now we can walk up to people who the church has rejected their whole lives. Walk up to people and say, I know who you are. How, how many people, how many people live, living in sin? Here's the other thing. You know, what, what audacity does it take for us to say, we've repeated a prayer, so no, our sins don't matter. Don't judge me by my mess-ups because I've repeated a prayer. And then we'll look at people in the culture and judge them exclusively off of what they do. So, you know what I'm saying? So, you, you, and this is the issue with race. This is the issue with homosexuality. This is the issue with abortion. I mean, this is the issue with Everything. You trace it back to this, is that we've taken the focus off of this and we've tried to make the focus Adam. And when you make the focus Adam, because Adam's already been taken care of, it causes a chaos and a void where nothing is because Adam doesn't live anymore. So it all, in our culture, it takes care of all this when you can look somebody in the eyes and you can see the image that was bought on the cross rather than the actions that were killed at the cross. Amen, Josh. Here's what, here's what Paul says in Ephesians. He's quoting Isaiah. He says, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Do you want to know how we evangelize? Wake up. All right, Lord. Here we go. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Luke 15. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I might. Having said all that, let me go back to Luke 15. This has become my, oh, not John 15. John 15 is good. Luke 15. 
Um, this has been my home for a month now, for a month. All right, let me, let me, let me just skim through this. Uh, many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen to Jesus as he taught the people. This raised concern with the Jewish. How in the world could he spend time with sinners? They should be killed and cast off. They grumbled. Uh, and that's just a quote summary. Verse 4. Jesus said in response to this, There was once a shepherd with a hundred lambs, but one of his lambs wandered away and was lost. I'm going to focus on that phrase, was lost today, just for a minute when we're done. So the shepherd left the 99 lambs out in the open field and searched in the wilderness for that one lost lamb. He did not stop until he found it. With exuberant joy, he raised it up and placed it on his shoulders, carrying it back with cheerful delight. Returning home, he called all his friends and neighbors together and said, Let's have a party. Come and celebrate with me the return of my lost lamb. It wandered away, but I found it and brought it home. Verse 7, In the same way, there will be a glorious celebration in heaven over the rescue of one lost sinner, Hemartea, right there, who repents, comes back home, and returns to the fold, more so than all the righteous people who have never strayed away. Verse 8. There was once a woman who had ten coins, valuable coins. She lost one and swept the entire house, diligently searching every corner of her house for that one lost coin. When she found it, she gathered all her friends and neighbors for a celebration, telling them, Come and celebrate with me. I had lost my, pre- I had lost my precious silver coin, but now I have found it. That's the way God responds every time one lost sinner, Hamartea, repents, comes to their senses, and turns to him. He says to all his angels, Let's have a joyous celebration for that one who was lost I have found. Last one. The father said, or Jesus said, once there was a father with two sons, the younger son came to the father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. Shortly after, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far off land where he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, man, I just hear I hear the Lord screaming right now in all this. With everything left and nothing, uh, excuse me, everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing. Repentance came to his senses. And he thought, There are many workers at my father's house who have all the food that they want, with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go home to my father's house, and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please just make me like one of your slaves. So the young son sent off, or set off, excuse me, for home. 
From a long distance away, his father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar, and with great compassion in his heart that swelled up for his son, who was returning home, the father raced out to meet him. He swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love. Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me be. And the father interrupted and said, Son, you are home now. I'm going to stop right there. The cross was Jesus interrupting the story, saying, Son, you're home now. But the Lord, the Lord just screamed. I just got to hit this. The Lord just hit this in me, and then I'll finish up. Matt, can you go ahead and come up here? That'll keep people in for a few more minutes. All right. The younger son goes to the father. Now, check this out. Father, don't you think it's time to give me my share of the estate? The father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. The Greek, bios, when the father went ahead and distributed among the two and gave them their inheritance, the Greek word bios right there means he gave them his life. So what's the inheritance that the sons were given because the younger son, not the older son, just the younger son asked for the inheritance. And in response, he gives both their inheritance. Okay? What was the inheritance? His life. The young listen, the younger son is at home. He's done nothing. He wants his inheritance. The father gives them his life. And after that, the younger son packs up and wastes everything he was given. The fa- Number one, the father knew he would waste everything he was given and still gave it to him. In one season the son found value in the father's house in what he could get from the father. In the next season, the son found value in the father's house by proximity to the father. Please don't go to sleep on this. He gives him his life. He wastes it. When he wastes it, There's a famine in the land which makes him hungry. When he's hungry, he decides to eat slop that he was not designed for. For the Jews, pigs were, you don't even get near pigs. But you sure don't eat them. And you sure don't eat what they're eating. So this was like highly offensive to that culture. Which means he got to the lowest of the lowest of the low that you could be at. Had it not been for that famine in this parable, the son would not have had a moment to come to his senses and go home. Some of you, Lord, this isn't even my message right now. Some of you have maybe been in a famine and dry, and you feel like the Lord hasn't been doing whatever you thought He was supposed to be doing. And it could be that the Lord's trying to get you to a place where you're so hungry, you go home and find what you were designed for. 
He comes to his senses. He goes home. And the father sees him as a beggar. When the father lays eyes on him, immediately he knows everything's gone. He's a beggar. He sees him and doesn't give three rips about what he did with the inheritance. All he cares about is the fact that my son that was once lost is now found. In all three of these stories, Jesus describes all of these as his sheep, his coin, and his son in all of them. The sheep, the coin, and the son never lost their identity and never lost their value. Do you, right? Do you see this? The son leaves home as a son and comes back home as a son. The coin is lost as a certain value and is found and retains its value and the image inscribed on it. The sheep is lost as its value and is returned to the fold as the same value. They never lose value, they never lose their image, and they never lose the affection of the owner even though they are lost. If anything, it grows. Do y'all hear this? Like, it, what if every time we sin, not only, not only did we not fall back into Adam and feel like we got to work our way up, what if every time we sin, it pushed us deeper into a measure we didn't have before? I'm not saying, I'm not giving you a license to do it. I'm saying, what if every single time you messed up, you realized that the resurrection bought you a new identity and you used that as leverage to go where no eye has seen? This is what the son does. He comes home and he plans in his mind, I'm going to pray this sinner's prayer and I'm going to ask to be a slave. I've prayed this a million times in my life. Lord, forgive me, I'm not worthy. Just make me a, a slave. Make me nothing, but at least I get in. And he comes home to repeat that prayer and the father interrupts him and he says, no, 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 no. You're my son. You're home. What defines something as lost? Quote, unquote. What defines something as lost? The sheep did not know it was lost and neither did the coin. And the son knew exactly where he was. The son wasn't lost. The son went where he knew he was going. He didn't wander off the trek. He knew exactly where he was going. The son wasn't lost. The coin wasn't lost. And the sheep wasn't lost. And yet they were all lost. Are you with me? I know this is I know I know we're late. So what defines it as lost? Could it be that it being misplaced from the grip of its owner is what defines it as lost? There's a lot of people around us that if you ask them, are you lost? They would say no. Yet they're lost. I mean, right? I mean, just turn on the TV. If you said, hey, are you lost? They would say, no, I'm good. Have no idea. Yet the Father calls them lost because until every single person comes home, 
he will not stop seeking until he finds. We, we saw, we defined the lost people as those who have lost their minds. And by definition of this, maybe, they don't know who they are. I've never looked as the, at the lost and defined them being lost by being misplaced from where they were designed to be. Because if I see that, now I become an agent to seek until he finds. Now I see the people around me who have lost their ever-loving minds. I don't see them as, well, you had a chance, see you later. If I see them as the value that we've been talking about this whole day, I now, in contact with this person, become the agent through which the Holy Spirit, as part of the triune God, speaks and says, I know who you are and I will seek until I find you. Every lost person on earth is not defined as lost because of their actions. Believers sin all the time. They're defined as lost because they've been misplaced from where they were always supposed to be. But, as I just said, he seeks. Let me just read it for you so you don't take my word for it. He left the 99, went out in the field, searched in the wilderness for that one lost lamb. He did not stop until he found it. This, today, everything I just taught you is what the gospel was always supposed to be. I got off track of it in my life before. All of us have gotten off track of this, but th this, is, this is what you were saved into. This is what you were saved into. Are y'all with me? Are y'all good? I know I'm losing you. I know I'm losing you. Everybody online have probably clicked out a long time ago. That's all right. Y'all missed all the good stuff. We're giving away free coffee. No, I'm just kidding. But um, it's one of these days I'm going to do that. Like give $100 to everybody who's still watching at the end. Um, and nobody, you know. Uh, but I'm just, I'm going to pray. Here's what we're going to do. I know it's 1210. I know y'all got sparklers and fireworks to do. But, um, <laughs> but we're just going to take a minute. If you, wanna, if you need to come up and pray, you do whatever you need to do. But like, I'm telling you, we need to finish this floundering identity within us. You know what I'm saying? And we need to finish this back and forth and back and forth. Some days you're good, some days you're not. Some days you're good, some days you're not. We need to finish that, and we need to live as Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. That's what Paul says. What is he saying? To live is Christ, and to die, Adam, is gain. So th this is what we're called into. So I, I don't know where you are in this, but we're going to take a minute and we're going to pray. And I want you to pray for two things. I want you to pray for the floundering in you, because this is what I've been praying for. And then I want you to pray for the floundering in how we see other people. Because Columbia is lost. I don't care how many people are in church today. Columbia is lost. And our job as those who have found the gold mine is to now be the ones as the first fruits of this taste to go to them and say, taste and see that he is good.